0: Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Olai Eaton. Today I'm going to be talking with Robert Nier about his new book, Napalm, an American Biography. Hi, Bob. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if we could begin with you just telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Um, I'm a core lecturer in history at Columbia University. Um, I got my uh, PhD degree there two years ago as part of a combined JD and PhD degree. Prior to that, um, I actually got the JD part um, about, gosh, now more than 20 years ago, Um, but I got the JD part at Columbia, and then I took a 14-year leave of absence from the program um, and worked in um, business, mostly media and entertainment business in Hong Kong and London and Singapore and Los Angeles and Boston, Um, and then kind of came to a stopping point in in my business endeavors (laughs) and went back to the university and and finished my PhD in history. this book that we're talking about uh, actually began its life uh, as my dissertation um, and then um, modified it a bit and published it um, by uh, the Belknap uh, in front of Harvard University Press um, in April of last year. Um, and uh, as when I finished my degree, uh, Columbia asked if I would uh, teach um, in the history department um, part of their core curriculum class for undergraduates, a uh, survey of... Um, political philosophy from um, time of the Greeks and the Bible all the way through to Nietzsche and Rawls and more contemporary philosophers. So that's what I've been doing um, last year this year, and very happy doing it.
0: Great. Um, so I wanted to start with a question about genre, because it's been a recent trend in publishing for there to be books about how certain elements or objects have shape, shaped our world. In particular, I'm thinking about um, the books on salt and... Dan Koppel's book on the banana. Um, But these authors are both coming from the angle of history, whilst Napalm is, as the subtitle says, an American biography. So what was your motivation for writing this as a biography rather than a history?
1: Well, um, I'm a big supporter and admirer of this trend, um, which I like uh, about uh, talking about um, the environment and technology and some of the inanimate forces that influence our lives. Um, as if they were animate things, uh, uh, subjects of a biography, because um, when you look at the life, as it were, of an object or of a, um, a creature like Cod, the, the biography that you mentioned, um, or stories of all kinds of basic uh, things, um, salt, for example, or others, over time, um, it gives one a chance to see uh, a kind of different perspective on how Human societies and human activities might be developing, um, and so uh, that's one point of reference to the title um, and uh, and and the interest of biographies. That you know, uh, it has been said that uh, really all histories are a kind of biography because they all tell the story of people's lives, ultimately lives of things, perhaps. Um, also, uh, with respect to the American part, I um, got my doctorate in. American history and consider my primary focus of, of academic ambition or, um, you know, stories to be told to be about the United States. Um, and so uh, I was really writing a kind of story of national history um, and at the same time an inanimate object, which obviously has affected people globally. So I think that um, insofar as One aspect of this story is America's changing role in the world over the 20th century. Um, I think that it is useful in that sense because napalm was invented in the United States. It's been used over a longer period of time, most extensively by America. I think that if you can call something um, that's global now in distribution by the name of the country that it started from, then in that sense, napalm is very much an American. Um, and by telling a story, you can illuminate the history of the country in that larger context over time. So that was my ambition or goal with the subtitle. Mm-hmm.
0: So what sources were most helpful to you as you were researching and writing?
1: I'm sorry, which sources were most helpful yes. to me? Mm-hmm. Um, well, the internet was by far <laughs> the most useful general source um, So far as a medium is a source. I think that uh, the, 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 um, the digitization of various kinds of records is absolutely revolutionary in the ease and scope of um, access that it offers. Uh, I myself was very fortunate to do the research for this book at Columbia University, which has one of the world's great research library collections. And so um, the combination of the Internet's reach and the depth of Columbia's collections, also used collections at Harvard, um, was very much of an aid to me. With respect to the types of of materials specifically, um, newspaper accounts... um, Well, let's say, uh, first of all, that this story relies exclusively on publicly available information. It was not like some kind of deeply hidden secret story that had to be uh, prized out of the mouths of highly recalcitrant officials. <laughs> uh, the, the, the Really the most shocking or striking thing to me about the whole story, the entire endeavor of writing this book, um, was that um, in 72 years since its invention, Um, during World War II, in that entire period of time, there hadn't been one um, academic article, magazine, or journal article, or book, um, or even any popular uh, history of of this weapon, which has severely affected, you know, burned people alive, about as comprehensively affected um, many, many uh, millions of people worldwide. Uh, Certainly, hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, have been killed by napalm, and certainly many millions have been intimately and deeply affected by it, and not one history or discussion of it, uh, you know, in any really kind of comprehensive or detailed way. Um, And so uh, that was really a a very um, striking aspect of the story for me. Mm -hmm.
0: So this is a really basic question, but if you could explain to us, what is napalm?
1: Napalm is any kind of thickened petrochemical, according to the guy who invented it. Um, An interesting aspect of the story is that when he came up with the name, um, he thought that the chemicals that he was making it out of were one called naphthenate. That was where the nay part came from, and another one called palmitate. Um, So naphthenate, palmitate together, napalm. And in fact, if you read lots of dictionaries, they actually give that as the definition of the word. But um, the the truth was, as he, as Professor Fieser at, at Harvard, who was the guy who invented it, uh, quickly discovered, was that um, it wasn't palmitate at all. It was really uh, lauric acid. Um, and so, as he himself wrote, the name should have been nae lore or nae cocoa because lauric acid actually comes from coconuts, or in the in the kind that he was using, comes from coconuts. Um, and so then he said, they just kept calling it napalm, even though the actual chemical formulation wasn't anything like what they thought it was. And so he said, and he's the guy who came up with the word, that the term just means it's chemically nondescriptive. It has no chemical meaning, and it certainly doesn't mean napkinate and palmitate. It just means any kind of thickened um, petrochemical. Um, And so... You can have lots of different napalms. You can have napalm, which has chemical formulation A. You can have napalm, which is chemical formulation B, C, and D. Um, And you could even say that there were lots of napalms being used before 1942 when the word was invented, except that would be, you know, anachronistic. Um, But certainly, since the term was invented, it simply means any kind of thickened petrochemical. And the reason that thickening is important for petrochemicals and especially for use as weapons is that... Wire, as you know, or may know, um, is this chemical process that transmits radiant energy most directly into whatever it's touching. So the head of a match, for example, is the most hot right where it is burning on that wood, um, and then above it is, is next most hot, and then to the sides, and then below. And so if something is sticky and burning, then it's actually physically touching in contact with whatever it's close to. And therefore, it can transmit the radiant energy that this process called fire is emitting more directly into into something and and light that on fire, too. And so that's why um, a napalm bomb, for example, is more effective than, let's say, a Molotov cocktail or something with just gasoline that's not thin, thickened, that's not sticky. It could do damage, but not as much.
0: I think that was the thing that I really didn't understand before I started reading this book was that it was like a jelly and it could splatter and disperse around and I thought that was a really interesting detail that I just never knew. Yeah,
1: I mean, that's the, I mean, so there are lots, I would say at least, uh, interesting aspects mm-hmm. to this story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but but in terms of just uh, the, let's say, um, human, human act of genius to create this device or um, construction, the, the aspects of napalm that are most remarkable are that, as you say, it is, it is sticky when it burns, but also it's not so uh, sticky or loose that it doesn't have any substance. It's not like a, a gruel or a soup, mm-hmm. um, which is to say that when it shatters uh, by explosives, uh, which blasts it apart, it keeps um, its consistency in little chunks. And so um, these chunks of sticky, burning jelly um, stick to things much more effectively than, let's say, droplets or a mist of sticky, burning jelly, um, because those kinds would go out too quickly for the purposes of trying to catch other things on fire. Um, also, napalm um, can be stored for long periods um, at quite cold temperatures or quite hot temperatures um, for example, in a some kind of place in the tropics, a warehouse it could be stored. Um, it was if it if it was taken up very high in the air, and an airplane bomber it would um, it would still maintain its effectiveness even though it got very cold. Um, and you can take the chemical um, agents of different kinds of napalms and um, store them in powdered forms, and then mix them um, typically on the battlefield um, with people that aren't really trained at all. Uh, it's just adding it to gasoline and stirring a bit and letting it set. So for all of these reasons, this particular invention um, was a very or is a very effective kind of um, weapon in ways that other types of gel incendiary weapons are not.
0: So you mentioned in the book that the initial tests of napalm were not conducted on sites approximating industrial or military structures, but rather on constructions that approximated homes. So was napalm always, either consciously or unconsciously, attended for use against civilian populations?
1: Um, well, not by the people that invented it, at least according to their own testimony. Um, they always and very consistently said that they imagined that this invention um, theirs would be used against things. Um, as I write in the book, um, it's uh, certainly something that I take them at their word about. Um, however, uh, as you mentioned, um, the Army immediately started to test it against uh, residential structures. Mm-hmm. And so since the scientists that invented it participated in a lot of those tests, which were um, uh, detailed down to every last um, element of the housing, including their furnishings and their construction and the kind of roofs that they had, except for the people, it sort of strains credulity to imagine that they were pretty well aware of of what it would be used for shortly after the extension process, let's say. Um, With respect to the army... They uh, did, did which during World War II, because this was an invention um, created in uh, at 1942 at the beginning of World War II in the United States at Harvard University um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and uh, then um, first used by the United States, which was its inventor, um, in Europe and in the Pacific during World War II. Um, and then by other countries as well. But so the first testing that we're talking about was by the by the U.S. military of this new invention. And exactly as you say, the the first tests that they did were on residential structures. First, uh, some villages in Indiana that they had um, condemned and moved everybody out of, and then they could practice um, dropping napalm and other kinds of incendiary bombs on them from airplanes, and also um, setting the bombs by hand and then detonating them and seeing how effective they were in different kinds of structures and in different places. Um, And then um, ultimately, in response, especially to some British criticism, their allies about the um, comprehensiveness of these types of testing on uh, some model German and Japanese residential villages that they built at a testing facility in Utah. After those kinds of tests, had been completed and the decision made to go with napalm as opposed to other competing um, incendiary weapons products by DuPont and by other companies. Um, They did do tests on factory structures and other structures um, at a base in Florida and some other places, Um, but those were uh, secondary, let's say, to those uh, initial tests against civilians, and I think that's because the anticipation was that These weapons would be used um, for bombardment attacks against um, cities, and most of the structures in cities are residential. Although, having said that, um, as I mentioned, this was the first book about napalm, but my fondest ambition is that other people will write other books about it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this specific... uh, The the record is pretty clear about the tests that they did, but the... uh, more detailed examination of their rationale and the internal debates, if, if any, um, by the army about that specific testing regimen would be a great subject for another
0: book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like a whole book could be written on the, the ideas of, of distributing napalm with the bats. <laughs> <That's>
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely any, wacky. Any history, <laughs> any history of napalm would be grotesquely incomplete <laughs> without a discussion of Project X-ray. Yes. Um,
0: Can you tell us a bit a, about a, that?
1: Well, and indeed, I mean, um, although, uh, you know, my book is a history of napalm, it was certainly beaten to the punch by Bat Bomb, which is an excellent history of that particular project. Um, that was a plan uh, uh, to equip millions of American, I call them American kamikazes or suicide bomber bats, although, of course, um, they weren't really, I think, um, signing up volitionally for this project. <laughs> Um, Anyway, to attach very small um, napalm bombs, just a few ounces, um, equipped with a chemical timer, um, because in those days, of course, there were none none of the contemporary digital electronic types of timers. Anyway, it was a a fuse that would dissolve in acid over a relatively short period of time um, attached to a wire. Um, the wire would be attached to um, a kind of um, bomb shell, which, interestingly enough, was built and designed by a company owned by the singer Bing Crosby and his brother Larry in California. Anyway, this um, this type of uh, bat bomb that they devised uh, was a ventilated uh, bomb shell um, that could hold several hundred bats in little ice cube type trays um, that were stacked um, in in um, in rows. Uh, And then when the uh, bomb was released from an airplane, um, the plan was to keep them at quite cold temperatures in the airplane to keep them torpid. Um, All these hundreds of bats, each carrying a small napalm time bomb, um, release them from the airplane. Uh, The bomb would start to descend and then um, uh, separate like an accordion, um, releasing the bats, actually dropping them, sort of knocking them from their trays down onto uh, a little platform below. Then they would... um, Revivify in warmer air, um, fly away and settle in some building or structure, um, and then uh, about maybe 15 or 20 minutes later burst into flames. Really a remarkable plan. Um, the Harvard scientists who invented napalm were the ones who designed the little bombs, and they uh, were able to do that because after they had worked on inventing napalm, they uh, converted their laboratory into a sort of top secret, um, I compare it to James Bond's Q branch, um, top secret research laboratory where they were able to work on all kinds of special napalm weapons that would um, immolate secret documents or float out uh, on a harbor and burn up some ships, those kinds of top secret types of programs. <laughs>
0: Um, so as you mentioned earlier, we often associate napalm with Vietnam, but it was actually in use during World War II. Can you discuss that a bit, particularly its use by LeMay and Japan on March 9th?
1: Um, yeah, so um, napalm, uh, after it was invented and tested, was released uh, to uh, U.S. fighting forces um, in Europe and in the Pacific at about the same time, and it was immediately uh, very popular um, among field commanders um, who tried to get as much of it as they could, um, especially uh, for use from airplanes. Um, Because while napalm dramatically improved the effectiveness of flamethrowers, increasing the range by about 10 times, and the delivery of burning material um, by many factors so that Prior to the invention of napalm, flamethrowers were very inefficient. Maybe 90% of the the gel that they were shooting, often mixtures of rubber and gasoline, would burn up before they got to their targets. And after the invention of napalm, they were able to deliver far more um, and more effectively to to targets that were farther away. But regardless of its efficiency in flamethrowers, the vast majority of napalm and the most effective use of it um, was from... um, in napalm bombs dropped by airplanes. And so in Europe, uh, those were used uh, to help uh, support the Normandy invasion um, uh, of France and later in larger quantity in in the Battle of the Ardennes and in other places um, in the European campaign. Um, And in the Pacific, um, it was used uh, on bombardment attacks in the South Pacific. And then um, after efforts to uh, have so-called precision bombardment attacks against Japan proved largely ineffective um, because of winter weather conditions and because of jet stream and other atmospheric problems that were affecting the ability of the bombers to um, aim their bombs. In March of 1945, the U.S. changed its um, bombing strategy and adopted a a strategy that had been used by the British throughout most of the war against Germany, which is so-called area bombing. Um, using large quantities of bombs to burn up a city if possible. And so on the 9th of March, um, American forces dropped about 250,000 seven-pound napalm bombs arranged in in clusters, cluster bombs, um, in the middle of uh, a sort of small wind hurricane. And um, as a result of these atmospheric conditions and this tremendous firebombing, Created um, a firestorm that burned up about 15 square miles of central Tokyo, which is one of the most densely populated cities in the world, and killed about 87,000 people um, in a night, which is the greatest military victory in history if you count victories as measured by numbers of casualties inflicted. Um, And really signified, um, at least for the United States in World War II, the beginning of a new and really quite Uh, unrestrained form of warfare in which um, entire cities, as I said, were incinerated. Um, And based on the effectiveness of that attack on Tokyo on the 9th of March, the United States um, tried to have the same type of attack against other major Japanese cities and continued bombing in that way for about 10 days until it had used up all the supplies of napalm that they had um, and then had to stop for a few weeks. And then when they were able to get more napalm, started again and ultimately um, burned up about 64 of Japan's 66 largest cities. The city of Kyoto was not burned because of political and historical reasons and cultural reasons. And then, of course, atomic bombs burned up the other two of uh, the 66 largest cities in Japan.
0: And yet, I'm trying to remember, because didn't McNamara recognize that if... if- if America had lost the war, then this would they would have been tried for war crimes for the burning of Tokyo, correct? So there were moral questions uh, coming up.
1: I, I don't know. That's what, um, that's what uh, Robert McNamara, um, who was later the Secretary of Defense mm-hmm. and who was one of the people um, who was working in the, in the, in the uh, strategic planning for those bombing attacks, said um, in the movie The Fog of War. Um, that's his opinion. I don't know whether that would have happened or not. But um, certainly, <coughs> these were uh, horrific, um, horrific, horrific experiences. Uh, I think everybody ag- agreed with that. Um, and ultimately, the larger parts of almost all of Japan's major cities were reduced to ashes. The um, U.S. Army published a map, which is actually featured in that movie, The Fog of War, in which they um, mapped um, the destruction of Japanese cities to the destruction of American cities of comparable size to show the kind of devastation that would have occurred in the United States if a similar campaign had been waged against this country. Um, and it's really, it's really um, a shocking map to read because you see almost every large city in the United States um, reduced by fire to a fraction of its previous size. You know, it'll say like New York, 50%, Los Angeles... Omaha, 80%. um, And each number means that that fraction of the city would have been burned up. So it was really a a devastating campaign. And what's particularly, I think, interesting, at least from a historical point of view, is that when you compare the investment that was required to ultimately incinerate, because nuclear bombs do most of their damage through heat as opposed to the explosion, although the explosion is tremendous as well. Um, but the, the, the Manhattan Project cost about $26 billion, according to the Brookings Institution, which conducted a comprehensive study of it. About $26 billion in, in current dollars. was so about $13 billion of research for each Japanese city incinerated, if you count Nagasaki as one and Hiroshima as two. Um, Napalm, by contrast, cost about $5 million in current dollars to, to develop and burned up, you know, 64 cities. Um, So, of course, there are lots of other calculations there, the the cost of airplanes and invading all the islands to make the air bases. But um, in the context, it suggests that the nuclear destruction really wasn't a very extraordinary event. Um, And it also suggests that even if nuclear weapons had never been invented, Um, Many of the aspects of our current existence, which people associate so closely with atomic weapons, like mutually assured destruction and the burning up of whole cities and tens of thousands of people killed in the night and things like that, would would have happened whether atomic bombs had been invented or not.
0: So napalm continued to be used after World War II in Korea and then again in Vietnam. So what turned the tide of American public opinion against its use around the mid-60s?
1: Um my analysis is that the thing that turned people against it was that uh, it lost. Um, it, it was the great, the cardinal sin for a weapon is to lose. So as long as Napalm was winning, people were pretty, uh, pretty pro-Napalm, let's say. Um, I mean, Americans really were pretty happy, I would say, about the, the destruction of Tokyo and the other 66 cities. Um, I mean, you know, it was um, winning the war. And I think that during Korea, where, as you you note, um, napalm was used extensively. I mean, the United States followed a very similar policy against uh, its enemies in Korea as it had in World War II, which is to say trying to burn up um, all the enemy cities. So Pyongyang was reduced to ashes the same way as Tokyo um, with napalm. And so during the time when napalm held the line against the communist menace and the hordes racing across the peninsula, uh, the, the frontier, um, it was a great thing. And, uh, it was also used, as you note, know, in many, many other places because, um, it wasn't difficult once it was shown, once it was demonstrated, it was easy to understand the chemical concept. And in fact, um, the United States, um, allowed Caesar and the other people who invented it to patent it. And so when it was patented, you could see exactly how that particular kind of napalm was made. So at the very time when, for example, the Rosenbergs were being executed for sharing secrets about the atomic bomb, um, napalms, recipe, this kind that was used in World War II was was published. And so pretty much every country with an air force um, started to use it. And uh, in fact, you know, it's been used and it remains in certain respects um, useful uh, on the battlefield. So, For example, the United States used napalm in um, its most recent recent invasion of Iraq. Um, But I think that what changed the attitude toward it from one of, let's say, applause, I mean, in the book I call it a hero uh, to one of condemnation um, was was the Vietnam War, and specifically um, a student-led protest movement focused initially against Dow Chemical um, that it, that that saw in napalm a symbol of everything that was wrong with the U.S. involvement in Vietnam, and then that was kind of confirmed, if you will, in my opinion, in the public mind um, after the war when napalm became you might say, a scapegoat um, for the U.S. defeat, but certainly a symbol of the U.S. defeat and of everything that was wrong with that war. And so insofar as people perceive that to have been, that war to have been not a success for the United States um, and perhaps a, a, a lesson for other countries, um, and to the degree that napalm is equated with that defeat and with that lesson, um, it has become a kind of monster and a pariah to the point that today... um, I would say that military authorities are effectively constrained, partly through international law, and we can talk about that, but even more through the law of global public opinion, um, so that if you use napalm in any context, it creates a political reaction completely out of any proportion to its military utility. So even though it has military utility, it's so much of a greater political problem that people these days tend not to use it.
0: Mm-hmm. So I want to come back to that in just a second, but one of the passages I found particularly fascinating was your discussion of the airbrushing of Feuser's record as regards his invention of napalm, as opposed to <laughs> Dow-, Dow Chemical, which still the reputation of them producing it still sticks to them to this day. So can you talk to those two, uh, talk about those two a bit?
1: Sure. Well, um, so with respect to Dow Chemical, as I had mentioned just a moment ago, they were um, they became um, extremely closely identified with NAPALM um, because of a nationwide movement of student protesters um, against the Vietnam War in general and against NAPALM and its effects on civilians in particular. Um, which was publicized through publication for the first time in national um, magazines and in other forms of media of information about the effects of this mission on civilians, especially on children. For example, when Martin Luther King um, reviewed a, a spread of photographs in the magazine Rampart that showed, um, for the first time in the United States, extensive pictures of the burns that children had suffered in Vietnam from napalm, that was the decision when he decided, that was the moment when he decided that he would become a more active um, protester against the Vietnam War. And it's just an illustration of a process that was going through the minds of, or the decision-making of, of many hundreds of thousands of millions of people across the country. So students at campuses nationwide, from California to the Midwest to the East Coast, um, started to protest. Dow Chemical's decision to continue manufacturing napalm as a way of making um, a broader statement against the Vietnam War. And they uh, would barricade and blockade and taunt and otherwise um, obstruct the efforts of Dow Chemical recruiters to interview and recruit students. Um, they also, in some cases, would protest the, the, the consumption or boycott um, Dow, Dow Chemical products like Saran Wrap. And so Dow was a nationwide consumer goods manufacturer that had to recruit um, new executives and researchers at campuses across the country. And this became a major um, national... Uh, public relations um, issue and subject of media comment Um, to the degree that, as you say, um, Dow remains closely identified in the minds of many people, including its own um, internal mind um, with the manufacturer of napalm for better and for worse. Um, With respect to Fieser himself, um, I think that first of all, he was never nearly so famous as Dow Chemical. Um, and so I would describe what, what I called in the book um, airbrushing as more a uh, reaction to this broader process, which people could see, which was, for example, the demonization of Dow, um, the protest nationwide against uh, napalm and what it did to people. Um, and so, uh, although in his own life and in his writings, he never expressed any kind of real regret for manufacturing napalm. He certainly regret um, having children burned alive, but he always said that um, he had no greater personal responsibility for what people did with napalm than a gun manufacturer would have um, for the fact that a rifle was used to assassinate President Kennedy. Um, a point of view, incidentally, um, which is shared in broad strokes uh, by Kim Phuc, the um, little girl who was photographed in the famous 1972 picture uh, running down a road burned na- naked by napalm um, and who survived that attack um, partly through therapy at a burns hospital in, in Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City, um, funded by American philanthropists um, and who is now a UNESCO um, World Peace um, spokesperson and who lives in Toronto um, and runs a foundation called the Kim Foundation. Um, she said that um, napalm was not itself evil, but like a knife or any other human creation, could be put to evil use by people who used it in evil ways. Um, in any in any event, Caesar himself, his biography um, by his colleagues and friends at Harvard, um, over time, Um, was stripped of any mention of of his involvement um, in the manufacture of napalm. And as I say, that was not something that he really did because he would talk about his involvement with napalm all the time. And in fact, at his retirement dinner, which was um, conducted in the shadow of those student demonstrations that I mentioned and the very, um, very um, evocative discussions um, on the Harvard campus and in Cambridge and elsewhere, right where he was living, um, I mean in fact, uh his backyard in Belmont um abutted Joan Paez's backyard. So so there's like no doubt that he was quite aware of this type of criticism. And as I say, he he actually wanted to um sort of um for for demonstration purposes, um, bring a little bit of napalm or burn something up with napalm at his retirement dinner at, at Harvard and was talked out of it by his wife. So so, so that um, moving away from Napalm in his biography was the work of others. Um, but it really, yeah, I mean, if you go to Harvard today, um, although Harvard University Press published my book, um, so I don't think that, at least with that respect, the institution has shied away from this history at all. But if you go to the Harvard College soccer field, for example, where the Napalm bomb was first tested, um, or if you go to the laboratory on Oxford Street, Converse Chemistry Laboratory, um, now where uh, napalm was invented, there's no plaque or sign or any kind of memorial, although um, certainly Harvard's campus is quite well endowed with memorials and plaques and other indicators of famous things that have happened in various places. Mm-hmm.
0: So how is the use of napalm governed now, and where does America stand in that?
1: Um Napalm, when it was uh, riding high, let's say, or um, widely applauded, um, was not regulated in any way under international law. Um, It's, I think, quite a striking commentary on history and law and uh, many aspects of our current society that these... uh, effects of this weapon on people, which in many cases today are considered to be some of the most barbarous and and awful things that people could do to each other, burning people alive or crippling them or injuring them through extremely painful, excruciating injuries, um, were not considered a problem, let's say, (laughs) a matter for the justice of international law. And it was only um, after the defeat of the United States... Um, became apparent um, in the early 1970s that groups of experts and uh, international committees of jurists um, under the auspices of the United Nations and um, Red Cross were convened for the first time. So one thing that I have always wondered about as a subject for another wonderful book <laughs> perhaps would be you know why, weren't any, why wasn't anybody upset about burning children alive in the nineteen fifties when napalm was winning, helping to win the Korean War? And uh, it's a broader question of justice and expediency and the role of international law. Anyway, the history uh, uh, from shows that uh, starting in the nineteen seventies and then culminating in nineteen eighty, um, a process of international review began um, and then um, manifested itself in the adoption as I said, in 1980, by the United Nations of Protocol 3 of the um, wonderfully named Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, which is an international law document um, that regulates some of the most awful inventions that people have come up with um, in, 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 con- you know, in con- conventional weapons. Um, so, a kind of Rhodes Gallery, let's say, of, of weaponry, uh, Protocol one, two, three, uh, the weapons are grouped into protocols. One, um, for example, regulates um, blinding lasers, which will blind people uh, from a distance, or uh, bombs that are made out of materials that can't be detected by medical imaging devices so that people will be injured, but doctors won't be able to help them. Um, anyway, protocol three... Uh, regulates incendiary weapons, and it basically stipulates that incendiary weapons are legal to use on the battlefield against combatants, but they cannot be used against concentrations of civilians, even if military targets are um, mixed in with those civilians. So um, under the terms of that um, law, uh, the destruction of Tokyo presumably would be considered a war crime, because that's certainly a concentration of civilians, even though uh, destroying Tokyo would arguably advance the war effort and on um, even though um, some of the people living in that city were involved directly as soldiers or making um, military devices uh, you know as military targets um, so that was 1980 uh, and uh, initially that treaty was signed um, by a relatively small number of countries but over time it has I think Um, undeniably become a global consensus. And so the current status of international law um, pretty unambiguously endorses in the sense that the vast majority of countries in the world that represent collectively uh, a a significant majority um, of of the world's population endorses this legal formulation that says that you um, cannot use a palm or other incendiary weapons um, under any circumstances against concentrations of civilians.
0: Mm-hmm. So as we discussed earlier, the subtitle of this book is an American biography. So this is a massive question, I know, but briefly, how is the life of this chemical agent characteristic of 20th century America?
1: Um, so I, I think that, um, as you say, it's a massive <laughs> um, subject. And it's difficult um in the context of the book to tell the story of Napalm and the country at the same time, and so um I really whenever possible, sort of defaulted to the more narrow and manageable subject and part of the um, part of the book I think is is for people to take their own conclusions from um, I think my favorite review actually of the book is some anonymous person on Amazon um, who said, uh, "Read this book and see yourself." Um, which is uh, sort of the kind of very philosophical type of review. Um, the, the subtitle has a double entendre. It's an American biography in the sense that you can see it as a biography of an American, or you could see it as a biography of America, one among other biographies of America. In my mind, I think that the the trajectory of this weapon, um, from hero to soldier to pariah, um, is in some respects, certainly not perfectly, but it, in some respect, it, it, it echoes the story of America um, in the 20th century, which went from being um, a unrivaled, globe-girdling superpower, I mean, at the end of World War II, for example, when America had a monopoly on nuclear weapons, um, was the only really large, fully functioning um, economy, um, was, uh, you know, the owner of many thousands of military bases worldwide, um, with by far um, the most strong and globally distributed military force, even compared to that of the Soviet Union, Um, to today, when the country finds itself um, with a very faltering economy, very deeply in debt, um, and infrastructure which has been surpassed already or is in the process of being surpassed by many places in the world. Um, For example, uh, I mean, it's just one example, Um, China's high-speed rail system now allows you to go from Shanghai to Beijing um, in a fraction of the time that it takes to go from Boston to New York, even though Boston to New York is a lot shorter. Um, And I think more worrisomely than that, the the relative change uh, is that in China, just as an example, the transportation network is increasingly, I mean, improving by enormous leaps. Um, I spent a long time in Hong Kong, and it used to take hours to go from Hong Kong to Guangzhou. um, But that trip now takes an hour, whereas by contrast, in many parts of the United States, um, transportation was faster um, and uh, easier um, in the past than it is today. Mm -hmm. Um, So I certainly have uh, you know, I, I, I love living in the United States. It's my, my, fa- my favorite country by, by far, but I think that um, it is constrained relative to its position at the end of World War II. And I think that napalm is also. Um, napalm uh, was a, a torch that could be wielded to incredible power, uh, powerful effect um, in 1945. Today, napalm is placed in a global Lattice of popular opinion and public control, um, arguably for the better. I mean, arguably, the story of napalm is an uplifting, happy story with a good ending because, um, we don't incinerate cities anymore. The United States did not incinerate Baghdad, uh, during the invasion of Iraq. Um, uh, uh, if you use, if, if Bashar al Assad uses napalm against, um, some suburb of damascus it 's a far you know greater story than if he just uses bullets and bombs and to me, that you know at least with respect to napalm um, suggests that uh, there 's some kind of a global human interest that can trump even the recognitions of specific military utility um, so I think that uh, so I think that it doesn 't have to be. Um, some kind of a tragic or depressing result. Um, And I think that the United States might certainly have its best days ahead of it, working uh, closely with the countries that are around it um, for common problems. Um, But I do think that that trajectory um, is useful as, as, as an aspect of America's story.
0: Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. Any idea what you're going to be writing about next?
1: Um, I think the next book I want to write about, I think that the subject of um, the U.S. military is a very important um, one and closely uh, related to America's story, by no means the only aspect of America's story, but just a, a story. And so um, I was thinking of writing uh, a global history of the United States military, um, perhaps uh, Uh, talking about um, the history of the country. I I teach a class at Columbia called Empire of Liberty, a Global History of the U.S. Military, which is a course that in one semester um, examines the entire uh, global history of U.S. military from the very first wars of European settlement in North America to um, Iraq and Afghanistan. And I've had a great time teaching that class, and uh, my students have enjoyed it, and I according to their testimony, learned a lot. So maybe taking that class and putting it in a book is my current project.
0: I've been talking today with Bob Neer about his new book, Napalm, an American Biography. I'm Olai Neaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.